round after round, Rocky's just pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. And finally, spoiler alert, um, he, he wins in the end. All right? Now, the movie came out in 1985, believe it or not. I know it just seems like yesterday you were watching it. But um, the movie actually came out in 1985. And when I came across it a couple years ago in particular on the USA Network, I was, just, I was surprised by the kind of angry and antagonistic tone towards the Russian people in that movie. Right? I remember about halfway into it, I go, I think this movie might be racist, right? Um, you know, it it's just was bizarre how angry and antagonistic it was, but if you didn't know it was made in 1985, it would just seem silly, but if you knew it was made in 1985, you would remember the Cold War and how the tensions between the United States and, and USSR at the time were, were really, really strained, and if you didn't know that, the movie would just seem weird to you. Like, why, why make a movie about, you know, Russia being, being so bad, and if you lived in 1985, it would make more sense to you. I think the book of Revelation can be that way. That if you don't understand that behind the truth of what you can see with your eyes, behind the truth of what you can see with your eyes, that God and Satan are at war. If you don't understand that, in the book of Revelation, when the curtain gets pulled back, the book's just going to seem weird to you. But if you understand that the heart of the book of Revelation is that God and, and Satan are in a war, good and evil are in a war, and that is what stands behind the curtain, when you understand that the book of Revelation begins to make more sense. And understand this, from the first page of the Bible until the last, this has been what's behind the curtain of the Bible. That good and evil are at war, God and Satan are at war. This is what is behind the curtain. And just because until the book of Revelation, we've not been able to see it with our eyes, understand that this is what's been happening behind the curtain from the very beginning of time. So let me explain to you this way. With our eyes, when you're reading your Bible, with your eyes as you're reading it, you see that Adam and Eve eat some forbidden fruit. Behind the curtain, a war is being waged. With our eyes, we see that David kills a giant. With our eyes, we see he becomes king of Israel. With our eyes, we see that he has an affair. Behind the curtain, a war is waging. With our eyes, we see that God's people are taken into captivity. Behind the curtain, a war is waging. With our eyes, we see Jesus born in Bethlehem. We see him become a, a, a perfect adult, never having sinned. We see him go to a cross, and we see him rise again three days later. Behind the curtain... That's what we see with our eyes. Behind the curtain, a war is waging. And that is, what, that, that is what the story of Revelation is all about. It is God pulling back the curtain of what's been true since the beginning of time and showing us what's really behind the curtain. Now, you have to understand something. And I said this last week, but I want to repeat it again because it is so important to understanding the book of Revelation. That at the resurrection of Jesus... At the resurrection of Jesus, Satan's future, excuse me, Satan's future was sealed and signed. Listen, there is nothing Satan can do about his future. It is signed, it is sealed, it is over. But we live in this weird time right now, all right? I want to kind of put this in the context of human history. We live in this weird time right now where Satan has been defeated. He was defeated at the cross and at the resurrection, but he is not yet destroyed. And so that puts the time that we're living in today a very odd time. He's defeated, he's not yet destroyed. So today, sin is real. 
Today, death is real. Today, disease is real. Satan has been defeated and was defeated at the resurrection, but he is not yet destroyed. And the story of Revelation is the story of how God finally brings about the destruction of sin and Satan and death and allows for the maximum number of people to place their faith in Jesus and enter into heaven when they die. That is the story of Revelation. It is this time in the future when God's going to say, enough. Sin is finally going to be destroyed forever and ever. Death is finally going to be destroyed forever and ever. Disease is finally going to be destroyed forever and ever. There comes this moment in the history, and God right now is holding in his right hand this scroll that has all of his plans to accomplish this. And at some point in the future, Jesus is going to turn to the Father and say, let's open up the scroll. And God's going to open up the scroll and the seals that we talked about last week are going to be broken. And God's plan to finally, fully and completely destroy sin and Satan, death and disease, that plan is going to be enacted. And we started that plan last Sunday. It was the breaking of the seals. Today we're going to see, uh, there were seven seals. Today we're going to see seven trumpets being blown. And in two weeks we're going to see uh, seven bowls of God's destruction being poured out. And this is God's plan. It is seven seven, seven. And I wasn't a math major. My wife was, but I think I can handle this one. Seven, seven, seven is bigger than six, six, six. Complicated math equation. Seven, seven, seven is greater than six, six, six. And so people become fixated. And we're going to talk about this next Sunday. People became, become fixated on six, 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 the mark of the beast and Satan and sin and death and all that stuff. But no, God's, God is greater than. And so today we're going to see him implement kind of stage two of his plan with the blowing of the trumpet. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation 8 and 9. Revelation 8 and 9. And to understand the passage that we're going to study to get together uh, today, I want to take you back to the Old Testament for, for just a minute. And I want to take you back to the Exodus uh, from, from the book of Exodus. And in that story, uh, probably seemed like a no-brainer. The Exodus from the book of Genesis doesn't make as much sense, all right? The Exodus from the book of Exodus. And in that story, God's people are in slavery. And they're under kind of an oppressive regime uh, under Pharaoh who was oppressive and unkind and terrible to work under. And God's people would just work all day and all night. And if your back gave out or your knees gave out, Pharaoh was, was, was such a ruthless dictator that, that he would just kill you if you couldn't produce for Egypt anymore. And God's people were in slavery in, in this land that was not the land that God had promised them, but God wanted to take them there. And so there comes this time when God has enough. And God sends Moses in, and he says, I want to see my people freed from their slavery. And so Moses goes in, and and God begins to pour out these plagues onto Egypt. And you may remember some of them. Uh, A blood, the river turned to blood, and uh, frogs, and gnats, and flies, and uh, the death of the livestock, and boils, and hail, and locusts, and darkness, and finally the plague of death. And in every one of these plagues, God's trying to accomplish a couple things. One is he's trying to free his people by breaking the back of Pharaoh. And the second thing he's doing, if you study the book of Exodus, is he is demonstrating that he is a greater God than the gods of Egypt. Each and every one of those plagues can be compared to and and, uh, a symbol of one of the Egyptian gods that they were worshiping. And with every plague that God sends on Egypt, he is saying, all right, you worship uh, the God of the sun or you you worship this God or that God. I, I am greater. I am greater. 
I am bigger. Worship me. Follow me. And God is demonstrating again and again and again that he is a bigger and better God. So we're in the book of Revelation, and what we are going to see is that, is that in those last days, people are again turning to false gods. They're different gods than they were following in Egypt, but people are again turning to false gods. And by the way, this is always Satan's plan. Satan will never come to you and say, hey, worship me. Or, or rarely will he do that. He's not trying to get Satan worshipers per se, right? Because we're all freaked out by that and we all understand that's wrong. What he tries to get people to do is to turn to false gods. So in the last days, people are turning to these false gods and we're gonna see God, this book of uh, Revelation 8 and 9 reads very similar to the book of Exodus. And we're gonna see God again uh, pour out these plagues on the earth to, to, to attack the false gods of the community and, and to demonstrate again that I am bigger, I am greater. Worship me and worship me alone. And this is what God's gonna accomplish. And he's gonna do it to break the back of Satan and he's gonna do it to allow for as many people to enter into eternity as possible. And so he's gonna communicate to people how great he is starting in Revelation 8-7. All right? So the, the scene has been set. The seals last week were broken, and now these angels come out, and they begin to blow these trumpets. Revelation 8, 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. So you see how this reads similar to the book of Exodus, right? The first trumpet sounds and hail and fire mixed with blood come down. A third of the trees, a third of the earth, and all of the green grass was all burned up in that moment. Now you have to remember, this is a Middle Eastern country, right? So keep that in perspective as you read this, that green grass and fruit trees and all of that stuff are kind of a commodity. And what these things represent in the first century, what was a place that you would find oasis and a place where you would find rest. Did you know that where you find your oasis and where you find your rest can easily become a false god to you? Right? In our culture, to them it may have been green grass and fruit trees. To us it is movies and entertainment. To us it is Facebook Right? To us, it is family. It can be any place where above God, you find your joy, hope, and peace, and even salvation. And in this story, God burns up a third of the grass, and a third of the trees, and a third of the earth. It is as if he is saying to, the, to, to his people, do not trust in the gods of this culture. Do not turn to these things in the culture for rest and for salvation. Rest in me, God says. Find your joy, hope, and peace, and salvation in me. I am a better God. He is attacking the culture's resting spot because he wants them to find their rest in him. He wants them to find their joy, hope, and even their salvation in him because he is a greater, uh, a greater person and a greater place to find rest in. All right, verse eight, the second trumpet. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. All right, you're gonna see this again. A third of the sea turned to blood a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were all destroyed. Now God goes into attacking the world's economy, right? No, no fish, no boats, the sea is turned to blood. And when so many are trying to find their joy, hope, and salvation in the economy, now God is saying, I, I am greater than the economy. I am greater than the economy. So worship me and worship me alone. You even see this today in a lesser way. 
Um, man, when the economy takes a turn, when the housing market fell a few years ago, anytime the stock market hits a little blip in the radar, people lose their minds, don't they? Because they, they become fearful and, and, and completely and totally paralyzed with that fear because we all fight this temptation to trust the economy more than we trust God. We all fight this temptation. Right, to trust in our jobs and our 401k and, and our stuff. And God, in these last days, he attacks the economy. He attacks the economy in that moment to, to prove that you, you got to trust in me. I, I'm greater than the economy. So he's demonstrating again, just like he did in Exodus, that he's greater and bigger and better. He's a bigger and better God to trust in. And so he says, he, it's an invitation. He says, again, trust in me more than you trust the economy. All right, uh, verse 10. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing uh, like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on, a, on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And just as a side note, um, there are entire books written about this, who this Wormwood is. Do you know what the answer is? Nobody knows. So I decided to save you a lot of hassle and not even talk about it because nobody knows, all right? So a third of the waters turn bitter. And I always love it when somebody writes like 100 pages and the end of it is, don't know. You could have told me that in paragraph one and saved me an hour and a half, right? A third of the waters turn bitter. Many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Again, water is where we turn to for life. And in some ancient cultures, they worship the God of water, rivers, and lakes. Uh, and this isn't so much where we are today, but even still today, water uh, symbolizes life. When I had the surgery on my right ear a few, few weeks ago, um, it turned everything like a, a, a metal taste. And I found that I, I uh, drink tons and tons of water in a day. I used to drink these liters of it. And I found that water in particular after the surgery just tasted disgusting. Right? And so I went back on my Diet Coke fixation. Right? And I'm drinking like liter after liter of Diet Coke. I'm like, I can't sleep at night. What's the problem? I'm, you know, buzzed up here. And so, you know, earlier this week, I'm finally be being able to drink water again because it's not so metallic and nasty tasting. But water symbolizes life. If you don't have water for a while, you begin to feel lethargic and tired and angry. <laughs> right? You begin to feel off your game because water symbolizes life. I'm reminded of a story from uh, Jesus' ministry where he runs into a woman uh, at a well. And the woman, uh, they begin to have a discussion about water. And Jesus says to her as they're drawing water, he says, whoever drinks from this water will go thirsty. He's talking about the well. Whoever drinks the water you're drawing will go thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never go thirsty again. And it turns out as the story unfolds that this woman had been married uh, five times and the guy she was living with at the time was not her husband. And, and Jesus is identifying, I know where you go to drink. I know where you're trying to find life. You're trying to find life in men. He says, I'm telling you, the water I can give you, the water your Savior can give you, it is a water and, and you'll never go thirsty again. This is a, a very graphic thing that Jesus is saying here. He's saying to the community in the last days, the water you're drinking, you, you think it's going to give you life. It's not. It's only going to lead to bitterness and death. So he says, stop trying to find life in these other things and start trying to find life in me because I'm better and greater than all of them. Revelation 8, 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, 
and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. And again, you see the same thing happen in the story in Exodus. In the Bible, dark very simply symbolizes life outside of God. Um, and light symbolizes the person who has life in God and, and the person who's fully committed to him. So the question is, as you read through this text, why only a third of everything? And in this text, you see it again. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a, thir- a third of the stars are, are all affected. And there's a lot of symbolism here. But I think the number one symbolism that's happening here is that in chapter 9, here's what we're going to read. In chapter 9, a third of mankind, all right, a third of mankind is going to be judged. There's no other way to say it. They're going to be killed. And in in Revelation 9, a third of mankind is going to meet up with their maker. And I think this is just a precursor that God is showing this third that is about about to die. He knows they're about to die and about to be judged that he is powerful, that he controls, he alone controls the sun and the moon and the stars. And he should be followed and they should leave behind the false gods that they're following after and they should find their hope in the true God of the Bible. I think here's the imagery of this text in particular. God's saying, would you see the light? Would you see the light? Would you come to the light, which is him? He said, would you worship me and worship me alone? And then the fifth trumpet sounds. Um, And this is The fifth trumpet's where it turns weird. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. Um, At at the sound of the fifth trumpet, um, released from the afterlife are locusts. Uh, I heard some commentators um, describe them as demonic locusts. um, And they are are sent upon the earth uh, to to torment, verse 4 says, to torment those outside of Christ. And I want to show you what these locusts look like um, uh, in, in the text. We'll put it up on the screen. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like a crown of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth. And then it just goes on from there. And that we later find out that these uh, locusts are sent to the earth, all right? They, they come from the afterlife, and they torment, we found out later, they, they torment those uh, that have rejected God. And, and um, the Bible goes on to describe them as murderers, the sexually immoral, and the robbers, um, those that have completely rejected God that could be described in that way. Murderers, sexually immoral, robbers, uh, demon worshipers is, is part of the list, idol worshipers. And, and the way I would describe the people uh, that, that this text describes is that they have rejected God and they have made themselves God. Right, so they have very clearly rejected God. They have made uh, themselves God and life is all about them. So if someone angers them, they become God and they kill them. If, they, if somebody has something that they want, as God, they just take what they want. If they want to do something sexually immoral because they are their God, they do whatever they want to do that is sexually immoral. They are the center. And these locusts are sent in, all right, and you can read the whole description of them in, in that text. The locusts are sent in and they are sent to... Um, to shake up their life and, and, and to torment them and to remind, to remind them that there's one who is greater than they are. Uh, they have placed themselves in the center of the universe 
And in this moment, they need to be reminded, there is one who is greater than you. So how does a locust coming and doing this, how does this remind them that, that God uh, is greater? And, and here's how it does that. There's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing that they can do about it. And, and they're not used to that. Right? If someone angers them, they murder them. Right? If they want something, they, they steal it. If they want to engage in a, a sexual activity, they just do it. They're not used to not having control. And in this moment, there is nothing they can do about this. And in addition to that, they are seeing God's people protected. Because during this plague in particular, God's people are protected. Right? And so they're watching God's people be protected. They're watching themselves be tormented in whatever way they're being tormented. There, there's nothing they can do about it. And it is a reminder to them that there is one who is greater than they are. Um, I believe, and this is going to sound crazy to you, I believe the locusts described in this text are part of God's grace for them. And I'm going to talk about this more in a minute, but I really believe this is part of God's grace to them because he knows, God knows, here's what God knows that we don't know until we read on, that when the sixth trumpet sounds, when the sixth trumpet sounds, a third of the earth is going to meet up with God. And God in his grace and God in his mercy are giving these murderers the, 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 these people that have rejected him, God in his grace and in his mercy is giving them one more chance to turn to him. People think that the story of Revelation is a story of God's judgment. I don't see it that way. I think the story of Revelation is a story of God's grace. Again and again and again, he comes to people that have rejected him and spit at him and told them that they want nothing to do with him. He comes to them again and again and again to extend his grace. And listen, I want to be very, very clear about this. The angel of death is going to come when the tr sixth trumpet sounds. Listen, the Passover lamb is still available to these people. You remember the story in the, in the book of Exodus that God says, you know, kill the lamb and put the blood over your doorframe and when the angel comes, it'll pass over your household. This is still available to them, right? The eternal life is still available to them. Salvation is still available to them and God is going to these extraordinary lengths to remind them that he is greater and they should turn to him. This is not just a story of God's judgment. There are elements of God's judgment in Revelation to be sure. This, the locust are God's grace to them, that they have murdered and they have robbed and they have been sexually immoral and the God of mercy and compassion gives them yet another opportunity to be saved. How great is your God? Right? If, if you think you are beyond his grace, if you think you are beyond saving, the God of the universe would tell you that his grace is sufficient for you. Stop turning to false gods. Stop turning to the gods of this culture and turn to the God of the universe who offers you mercy and grace every day. It is available to them yet in this text and it is available to you. So you read this text and if you're like me, you, you know, I put off even writing about those locusts until the end of my sermon prep. I don't, I don't like talking about this stuff that God's gonna send locusts into the world and he's gonna torment those outside of him. That's not a feel-good message for a pastor, All right? Turn to him or the locusts are coming. You know, that's not a feel-good message, right? So I put off even writing about this. You read, you read it and you think it's, it's scary and here's what you say and, and I, I thought this too. You just say, I thought God loved his people. I thought God loved everybody. 
And here he is at a minimum, depending on how you read the text, at a minimum, he's allowing these locusts to come in. At a maximum, depending on how you read the text, God sent those locusts in. So it just depends on your interpretation. At at a minimum, he's allowing them. At a maximum, he's sending them in. And the question is, what what is up with it? I thought God loved people. And I heard uh, a great conversation this week on the radio. And there was a a, a radio show in the state of Texas that was interviewing a pastor there. His name was Matt Chandler. This guy asked a question that I thought was really, really great. And it pertained to the sermon, so I wanted to share with you. uh, The the radio uh, guy asking the interview questions was not a Christian. He said to Matt Chandler, he said, I, I love the, the stuff in Christianity that talks about forgiveness. And he said, I have found in my life that a great number of people have done wrong to me. A great number of people have hurt me. A great number of people have sinned against me. And he said, I know that based on your message of Christianity, that Christianity teaches that I need to forgive those people. And I said, that's right. You, you do need to forgive those people according to Christianity. And he said, but here's my question. Let me get to my question. So my question is, don't I also need to forgive God for the terrible things that God has done to me? And Matt had one of the best, and that, that's the question of this text. And Matt had one of the best answers I, I, I could ever come up with. He said, first of all, God is holy and righteous and good. God has never sinned. He doesn't need to be forgiven for anything, right? That, that God, as God, God has the authority and the ability to do things that if, if we did them, it, it would be a sin. But because he's the God of the universe, he, he, can do, he can do certain things. He has all power and all control. He doesn't need to be forgiven for anything. He's good, he's holy, and he's righteous. But then Matt went on to say this. He, four years ago, was diagnosed with brain cancer. And uh, he, terminal brain cancer. They gave him uh, two years to live. They're now giving him seven years to live. And Matt said, when, when they found out that I had brain cancer, he said, I went to a surgeon and they, they cut open my cranium and, and they pulled out as much of the cancer as they could. And then they radiated me and they gave me chemotherapy for 18 months. And it was just miserable. He described laying uh, in the bathroom, hardly even unable to raise his head to the toilet. He said, it was awful. It was terrible. And he said, at no point did it ever even occur to me that I needed to forgive my surgeon for what he did to me. Never once did it even occur to me that I needed to forgive the, radiate, the radiators and the, the chemotherapy techs. Never once did it occur to me that I needed to forgive them for what they did to me. You know why? They were doing it for his good. They were doing it for his good. They were doing it to save his life. And that is what is happening in the book of Revelation. That God is bringing about hardship. He is. There's no question about that. He's certainly at least allowing it to happen. God is bringing about this hardship in the last days, but he is doing it to save lives. He's doing it to save eternal lives because he knows that when the sixth trumpet uh, is blown, that a third of the earth is going to meet their maker. And so God is reaching out to them again and again and again. God doesn't need to be forgiven for anything. He's done nothing wrong. He's trying to save lives. And so people that would read the book of Revelation and impute God's righteousness using this book, it is wrong. 
God is doing this because he loves mankind. He wants to see mankind saved, and he wants to see them come into a relationship with him. And listen, I said this last week too, I think it worked, right? Things that you think are, are gonna work uh, that, that you think will never work, and God's, when God does it, it often works because he's bigger and, and greater and smarter than you are. So what God does works, and I, I'll show you uh, why, how it works in a minute. But first I wanna show you, I think, um, one of the craziest passages of scripture in the Bible, honestly. All right. After everything we've discussed, take a look at verse 20. Unbelievable. And then I'll show you how it works after this, but... The rest of mankind that were not killed by the plague. So the sixth trumpet sounds, a third of the earth goes to meet their maker. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, look, still, still did not repent of the works of their hands. They still did not stop worshiping demons and idols, verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Is that not amazing? God in Revelation 8 and 9 has demonstrated in every way possible that he is greater than fill in the blank and there is still a sizable group that is left on the earth that refuses to change their ways. They refuse, the Bible's word for this is repent. They refuse to turn 180 degrees and say, I was pursuing this, God, now I'm pursuing you. They refuse to come back to him. Listen, this is the question of this text. I, I said last week, and we'll be using this a lot, that revelation was not given to us for prediction. Revelation was given to us for introspection, right? So revelation was not given to us to figure out when the end, end times are coming or who the beast is or what 666 means. That, that is not why revelation was given to us. Revelation was given to us so that we could look within ourselves and say, am I, am I a person that would, would walk through these things and stay true to God? And I think that is the question of this text. Here's the question. Am I a repentant person? Am I a repentant person? Because you see these people come through Revelation 8 and 9. They've seen God greater in every way. They've seen God in control. They, they've seen those outside of Christ tormented in some way by these locusts. They've seen all this, and yet they still refuse to repent. They still refuse to come back to God. And I think the question of the text is simple. Am I a repentant person? When I am confronted with my sin, when I am confronted with it in a message or in a prayer or, or by a friend, when, when I'm confronted with my sin, do I repent? Do I turn away from my sin and back toward my Savior? Am I made of Revelation 11:15 stuff? All right, let me explain what I mean by that. Remember where we left things. The angel of death has come through. A third of the world is gone. By the way, just kind of tuck this away for future messages. It appears that all that is left in the world at this point in Revelation are the unrepentant, right? It appears that everybody else is gone. Only the unrepentant remain. And when the seventh trumpet blows, we're taken back up to heaven, and I want to show you what verse 15 says. There were loud voices. This is how I know what God did worked. There were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. I believe that many that were in those loud voices before the trumpet started sounding were unrepentant. 
I believe that. I believe many in that crowd that day were formerly unrepentant people that were confronted with the greatness of God. They were confronted with their sin. They were confronted with that. And they are doing what a repentant person does. They are turning to their Lord and Savior for salvation. They are turning to their Lord and Savior and they are are worshiping him with their heart, souls, mind, and strength. These are the repentant. And this is what repentant people do. They worship him no matter what. They honor him no matter what. They follow him no matter what. And when they, a sin is revealed to them, when they are confronted with a sin, they do a 180 and they turn from their sin and they turn to their Savior. They repent. And so the question remains, what type of person are you? Are you could you be described in verse 20? It says, when you are confronted with a sin, when you are confronted with the greatness of God, you still don't repent. You still don't turn back to your God. You still don't turn to him for salvation. Are you that person or are you a Revelation eleven fifteen person? That when you are confronted with your sin, when you are confronted with your wrongdoing, you turn to the God of the universe for your salvation. And when you and I repent, here's the story of Revelation When we repent, we find grace. When we repent, we find joy, hope, and peace, and salvation. And it's not that as a Christian we never have sin in our lives. Of course we do. I'm trying to give a theological construct for this world based on Revelation. We are in a sinful world. We are in a world fraught with temptation. We are in a world where it is easy to sin. Of course we're going to sin. Of course we are. Don't walk out of here saying, I'm never going to sin again. Of course you're going to sin again. Hopefully not in the parking lot when somebody cuts you off, right? On your way out of church, right? I've seen that happen before, right? Um, It's like, you just were in church. You're like losing it on that guy. But anyway, of course we're going to sin. But when we sin, we are the repentant. We are the repentant. And we turn to our God for grace and mercy and salvation. And in him, we find life. Never let it be said of us that we were confronted with our sin or we were confronted with the greatness of God and that we were like that that group that said, even then, even then, they refused to repent. Even then, they refused to repent. Let that never be said of us. Let us be the repentant that when a sin is brought to our attention, we turn back to our God and we receive grace, mercy, salvation, and new life. Let it be said of us. Will you 